Recently, I've had the incredible joy of meeting Liz Bohannon. She's one of those young leaders that has that it factor that is, you know that God is using her life in a mighty, powerful way. Liz is somebody that we're going to do a podcast with today, and I'm very excited for her to share just some of her life with you. She runs a company that's a multi-million dollar company that has an operation in Uganda and Portland, Oregon. So I'm excited to share some time with her, and I'm excited that she's going to be a speaker at Leadership Collab in San Diego coming up this year. It'll be a great time. I'm looking forward to it and introducing you to my new friend, Liz Bohannon. Well, I'm excited to be here in the Convene Studios with Liz, and she is the founder of Seiko Designs with her husband, Ben. It's been featured on Shark Tank. It's been featured in Forbes, Vogue, People Magazine, and a whole lot of other places. It's an ethical brand, which we're going to talk about what that means, to educate and empower women. Some have said it's beautiful products and beautifully changed lives. And this year, Seiko enabled 130 or more women to attend university and become leaders in their country. Welcome, Liz. Thank you, Greg. It's so good to be good here. Good to be here. And uh, we are going to chit chat about Seiko and the roots of it and how that's all come to be. So your husband is Ben and you guys both run the company, to be clear. Uh, there's two of you. And somehow you met and you were maybe already thinking about Seiko. Maybe you weren't. But tell us about how this relationship and the business all came together into one little package. Well, I'll tell you that today is Ben and I's 10-year wedding anniversary. Woo! And this summer is Seiko's 10-year company anniversary. So I'll let all of you uh, math nerds do some math on that around the origins of our marriage and the origins of our company. But our relationship actually started many years before we launched the company. So we went to university together and we're actually really, really good friends for a, almost a full four years, pretty much throughout our whole college before we even started dating. So we had a really long friendship. And then we started dating and I moved to Uganda. Ben was back here in the US um, in his first job. He was a project manager at a cool, really cool um, small tech startup in Kansas City. And so I was off in Uganda doing my thing and he was back here in the States and started Seiko while I was over there. And then when I moved back home to sell these sandals out of the back of my car, we'll circle back to that later. Um, about four days after I moved back home, Ben proposed. <laughs> so he, he was down on his knee asking me to, you know, marry him. And in my head, I'm thinking like, Oh yes, I definitely want to marry you. Um, should I tell Ben like before or after we join our bank accounts that I promised three women in East Africa, I would pay for them to go to college if my little like sandal idea didn't pan uh. out. Um, so I definitely waited until afterwards, and then we had that conversation. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so, honey, didn't you know you're buying into a sandal company that has no revenue yet? <laughs> <laughs> right, a pre-revenue sandal company. So um, we really, that first year of marriage was so wild. I mean, we were launching this company. Ben was still working full-time, um, and we were surviving off of his you know, entry-level first job out of college income while I was working full-time in the business and then Ben would come home at night every night and we would spend another three, four, five hours, the two of us working on the business together. 
And that was really the first year of marriage. And then um, we finally got to a point where we were like, okay, things were, we were starting to get some traction. We were starting to be um, post revenue <laughs> instead of pre revenue. And um, it was time for the next leap. So Ben quit his full-time job and then we both were uh, working full-time on Seiko. And that has been the story from from that moment wow, on. Wow, sweet. It, later. It, it, this, this interview is not about me, but for another time, it reminds me of driving my little Audi from Toronto, Canada to Vancouver to buy a business that had $40,000 of revenue and we had two kids. And somebody told me that my wife, Shelly, should do the books. And I said, do the books? There's no revenue. <laughs> There's no books to do. So she decided that it would be much better if she sold things rather than tried to add things up. And that's how we grew the company. So, yeah. I love yeah. it. It's amazing. Well, we, the working with your partner, it's there, it's a real hot or cold. People either love it and they're passionate about it and it works for them. And then other people are like, I would literally, that would not work in my marriage. And um, luckily for Ben and I, we, our marriage is one that is, um, just like quite a partnership. We love creating together. We love problem solving together. Um, so it has been one of the great joys of my life to get to build this thing that I love so much and care so deeply about and get to do that alongside the ones that I care the most about. So it's been a really fun adventure. So Liz, there was this one moment in time when you, uh, you decided to do something about the conflict that you had heard about in Uganda. Talk about that because that's some of the roots or the roots of Seiko. Yeah. So when I, so I graduated from university with all of this interest and in kind of quote unquote knowledge about issues that were facing women and girls living in extreme poverty and conflict and post-conflict zones. But I had this moment where I realized that I, I knew a lot of stuff, but the reality is my life was completely unaffected by those realities, that there was this huge delta between what I said I cared about and then the actual trajectory of my life and the world that I was kind of building for myself. And so in that moment, I decided that I wanted to close that delta. And frankly, I didn't really have a vision for what that was going to look like. Um, but I believe deeply on a lot of different levels in proximity. And so um, decided that I was going to move to Uganda and I was going to build a community and build relationships and build a world that was a little bit less clean and separated from kind of the issues that I said that I cared about. And yeah. so that's what I did. Wow. So you got off the plane, you saw lots of chickens and something happened with the whole chicken story. What was that? Yeah. So uh, to back up a little bit, I, I got off the plane, spent months just kind of wandering around, trying to make friends, trying to learn as much as I could and ended up meeting an incredible group of young women in between high school and university. And these young women um, all tested into college, but the vast majority of them couldn't afford to go. They were graduating into a nine month gap. There's a nine month gap in the Ugandan school system between high school and university. And they were all gonna go back home to their villages to look for jobs, to try to earn money, to pay for college. And um, there was a big issue because a lot of them weren't going to be able to find jobs. And uh, there was also an issue that a lot of them would lose kind of the social support network that they had had over the last two years being a part of this girls leadership academy and they would go back home and face a ton of social pressure to get married and to start having kids and so all of a sudden kind of this huge meta issue of women and girls in extreme poverty and gender inequality 
went from being this kind of overwhelming, huge thing that how do you even start to get your hands around that to this like crazy narrow focused problem of, okay, there are 25 super smart, super bright young women getting ready to graduate. How do we create a bridge between high school and university so that they can continue on to college and become leaders in their Mm -hmm. community? And so um, as you alluded to, I, um, well, I first started a charity and then um, through a series of events that kind of ended up turning my world upside down, realized that this problem that I had heard over and over again is, is a problem to be solved with charity or with humanitarian aid actually needed to be solved with a marketplace solution. We needed to be creating jobs, doing it in a way that was sustainable, building wealth, contributing to infrastructure, you know, all of these like pretty basic economic concepts that we get when we're talking about our own economy, how important basic things like employment are. And then yet we go to other places like Africa and all of a sudden it's like we take off our basic economic hats and put on these very different thinking caps about how we solve problems. And so that really turned my world upside down and I was like, okay, I'm not, I can't, I cannot in good faith start a charity. I want to start a marketplace solution. And um, then I started a chicken farm and that chicken farm failed pretty quickly. (laughs) And you discovered that chickens were not your friend? I discovered that chickens were not, they did not light my soul on fire. (laughs) They did not spark joy, if you will. (laughs) So talk about what Seiko is today it's uh many things and it's not just sandals yeah yeah so after the chicken farm failed i had um i'm when i was in college i made a pair of these funky strappy sandals with interchangeable laces that could be you know tied in different ways really my motivation was I would love a pair of flip-flops that don't flop. And so I was, you know, living in Uganda. I was like, had all these kind of parameters of things that I was like, okay, if we're going to do a business, it needs to kind of check these basic boxes. And actually one of my friends from back home was like, what about those like strappy, funky sandals that you made when we were in college? And I was like, okay, locally sourced, we could make them by hand, relatively light to ship, ran like a really brief kind of like you know, analysis on how much I thought we could charge for them versus like a rough, you know, COGS estimate and was like, okay, actually, I like, I think that this could work. And um, so I invented these sandals, spent months just kind of like traveling across the the country looking for the materials that we needed and um, then went to the school and hired three young women, Mary, Mercy, and Rebecca. And I taught those young women how to make these sandals and, and promised them. I was like, all right, ladies, if you promise to make these sandals for the next nine months during high school and college, I promise that you will go to university in the fall. And they were like, okay. And wow. I was like, okay. <laughs> and then I came back home to the U.S. with like probably four suitcases of sandals that I tried to smuggle through customs without being flagged and started selling them out of the back of my, out of the back of my car. Um, and that's how it all started. Now today, to answer your question, we are now a full on um, women's lifestyle brand. So we are not just sandals. We do sandals and footwear and apparel and leather goods and handbags and jewelry, Um, have a beautiful catalog we release for um, collections a year. We own a factory in Uganda um, where we still partner with that same school to this day. This past year actually was the first year where we were able to meet kind of our big our huge 10 year goal when I was sitting underneath that mango tree 10 years ago was like, I want to be able to employ every single girl that graduates from this high school who wants a job. I want to be able to offer her a job when she graduates. And this past year we were able to do that. So wow. it was a huge, 
a huge milestone. And since then, in addition to the work that we're doing in Uganda, we've partnered with um, artists and organizations in Ethiopia and Kenya, really all over Africa, in South America, and in India as well, to build out this whole lifestyle catalog that is all produced um, to the principles of, of fair trade. That's great. That's great. What a great uh, vision and dream that became reality with a lot of hard work. Yes. And a lot of probably uh, uh, God-sized intervention. All of the things, all of the grit and all of the risk-taking and all of the hard work, but then also all of the miracles. Yeah, yeah. You believe that girls are a, uh, uh, a big factor in the future of the country. Talk about that a little bit. Girls are the future really of the world. And I think in some ways we are starting to see some really incredible shifts happening, but still globally, 66% of the world's labor is done by women and yet they earn less than 10% of the world's income, less than 1% of the world's assets are held by women. Women globally are more likely to suffer injury or death because of intimate partner violence than because of traffic accidents and malaria combined. Wow. Um, the, purely, even just from a marketplace economic standpoint, if we think about what would happen if we created resources and pathways for women to pursue education, to pursue economic um, opportunity, that the, the workforce and the sheer um, woman power and intellectual power that we are missing out on um, would start to come to fruition. And I truly believe that some of the world's most interesting problems that have yet to be solved um, are waiting to be solved by the 13-year-old girl who's getting married off to the 40-year-old village elder before she has a chance to, to realize that potential and to mm. go on and solve some of the world's most interesting problems. Mm. Wow. Well, let's uh, go back to the day-to-day -day in Portland. You're the creative director, the brand manager, the lead designer, the visionary, and you have a, and you have a husband and you have two young toddlers. How do you maintain and what do you call balance in mm. life? And I'm not looking for, oh, you know, I do this all perfectly and we're perfectly balanced. But I imagine there's some times when uh, balance means you're working 12, 14 hours and then other days you're not working any hours. So talk about what that looks like. I don't believe in work-life balance. <laughs> In the sense that I think balance pits the two against each other, and I think it's a false dichotomy. Yeah. A question that I really like to ask myself is, am I experiencing work fulfillment? Am I experiencing life or personal fulfillment? And asking those is kind of two separate questions, um, because sometimes the answer to both of them is going to be yes. And there are times where the answer to one of them is going to be no. And that might have something to do with the other sphere. But a lot of times I think, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people, women, I would say specifically that because I think our culture um, expects work-life balance out of women in a way that we don't out of men. I think that we believe that you can be a phenomenal father and still miss a baseball game every once in a while. But that when you show up and when you show up with intention and with heart and with presence that you're giving an incredible gift to your children. I don't think we allow that same grace um, for mothers. So it makes it a lot more difficult for us. I don't think intrinsically, but I think um, because of kind of some of the, the 
cultural norms that exist for us. And so I often just find myself asking, like, am I feeling fulfilled to my calling as a mother right now in this moment? And when the answer is no, sometimes the answer is like, okay, you need to, ba- you've been traveling too much. You need to say no to the next opportunity. It's not worth it. It's not, you know, you, you've got to slow down. But a lot of times the answer has nothing to do with work the answer has something to do with like, are you being present with your kids? Are you continually going to the Lord? And are you seeking guidance and discernment about how to steward them? Are you bringing, you know, the right energy, all of these different things. Um, So sometimes the answer is about work and, and those things do relate, but a lot of times, a lot of times they're not. And I believe so much in seasons that there are going to be seasons of work where I'm working my butt off and I don't really see my kids. This spring was super tough. I went on a two week trip to Uganda. I came back. I had to go to the East coast 48 hours later and it was hard. It was super hard. I missed my kids, but I also can tell myself and know that it's like my today isn't necessarily like, this isn't the end. I'm going to, I'm going to run really hard in this season and then I'm going to have a season of rest and I'm going to have a season of, of, and even on a meta level, you know, it's like the, the, how hard we ran when we launched this company 10 years ago, I couldn't do right now during this season of life. I mean, we literally, all we did was work all of the time. We didn't pay, take a paycheck. We literally lived out of our car and couch surfed across the country trying to launch this brand. And it's like, that doesn't make sense, but I'm so grateful that I did that during this season because it's allowed me to, to create a life that I generally do feel really fulfilled both in work and in family now that had I not just worked my butt off straight for a season without being, you know, quite so concerned with, with work-life balance, I don't think I ever would have. And so, man, it kind of kills me when I hear people just coming out of college asking about work-life balance. And I'm like, what the heck? No, now is actually not the season for that. Like work as hard as you can right now so that later in life, like you have the freedom and the opportunity to integrate that more. But like, I don't necessarily think the question you should be asking yourself when you're 22 is like, how do I pursue the most balanced life possible? Again, I don't want to put norms out for everybody, but at least for myself, I'm really glad that my life has been a lot more about these seasons of intense work and then rest um, than than, um, trying to pursue kind of the mythical unicorn of work-life balance from day one. Mm -hmm. I totally love your answer. I totally agree with it. And I think that's one of the best answers I've heard on that whole subject. There's a lot of people, a lot of people who are really messed up because they feel like I have to, you know, leave work at 4.30 so I can be with my kids till 8.30 so I can put them down in bed and have my devotions at five o'clock, whatever. Sometimes that's just not how life is. And uh, there's a, a, an author from a long time ago that talks about the old uh, uh, tubes and tires. And sometimes a tube and a tire got a little bump in the tube. And he said, that's kind of how it is sometimes. Your work might be a bump mm. uh, that's, that's, there's too much. And your family, maybe they're sick of you after you've been home for three days or whatever the case may be. So I, I, I love what you just said. How, how about a story about a girl in Uganda whose life has been changed? Oh man, how about a story of women here in the U.S. whose lives have been changed because of women in Uganda? I I really like to start there because um, 
I think that part of what I've learned over the last decade of being in a social good enterprise is that there's a lot of um, continuation of this notion of giver and receiver, right? By buying this product, you're benefiting someone, uh, you know, overseas that is underprivileged. Um, and what we are trying to do at Seiko is completely turn that narrative upside down and to say, like, actually, there is no giver and receiver. So I will tell you the story about a woman named Janine who um, she's actually a professional clarinetist. She um, plays in a symphony in Dallas, had her son and um, suffered from severe postpartum depression, lost a ton of community in the process, was living in just a lot of shame about not being a good mom and having this illness that she didn't feel like she could get over and became a Seiko fellow. And a Seiko fellow, um, these are the women across the US that sell the products. So they go out into their community, they host events, they market the products, they sell it, and then they earn an income based off of the sales that they do. We've actually pulled our products completely off the shelves of um, all the wholesale partners that we used to have um, because we believe very deeply in this model of trying to democratize social entrepreneurship and put our brand and our products into the hands of women in their community who will promote and sell and provide crazy good service and styling and customer service that we would never be able to. So she joined as a Seiko fellow um, in a pretty difficult place in life where she is like, she's kind of lost herself, lost what she was passionate about, lost kind of the sense of who she was and what she had to offer and became a Seiko fellow. And because our amazing team in Uganda shows up every day to do incredibly difficult work, to make beautiful products, to deliver high quality goods on time, Janine over here in Dallas, Texas gets to sell those products and she is earning a full-time income. She's been able to um, meet an incredible group of women. She now runs a team of over a hundred women across the U S and is seen as this like incredibly respected and beloved and revered leader in our community. And this woman has literally over the last 18 months come back to life. And it has been mm. so amazing. And so on this trip, to Uganda, it was so beautiful. Um, we showed up in Uganda, you know, we meet our Ugandan colleagues and we hear all these cool stories about women in Uganda and, and how their lives have changed. And then I have a group of 12 American women who stand up and tell a group of Ugandan women, here's how my life has been changed because of you. Here's how you and this global sisterhood has been a part of me coming back to who I am. Um, and so in addition to some really amazing, awesome stories about things that have happened to women in Uganda, just simply by having access to a job, to a university education, I spent some time with um, a woman named Beatrice on, and just a few weeks ago when I was in Uganda. She was in our class of 2011, grew up in northern Uganda in the height of the civil conflict. All five of her brothers were kidnapped by the Lord's Resistance Army. Incredible amount of trauma. I mean, that's a literally grew up in a nightmare situation, ended up making it into um, this, this college prep program, worked for Seiko during that nine months, earned enough to go on to university, got a four-year college degree, graduated, and now she's working for a microfinance organization. She's the chief loan officer over the entire region. And Beatrice herself has personally overseen over a thousand microloans that have gone out to other women in her community. So by having the chance to get an education, um, to have this economic opportunity, she is now quite literally paying it forward to hundreds of other women in her community that are going on to make an impact. And we know that for every dollar 
a woman earns, she's going to reinvest 90 cents of that dollar into her family, into mm -hmm. clean water, into healthy food, into getting her kids into school. And the statistic is that that's about 30 cents of every dollar that a man in that same area earns. And so the bang for your buck by investing in women um, and that economy is really incredible. And so it's been fun to just simply be a small part of, of that story. Somebody uh, said to me the other day about a country that will remain nameless that there was, uh, they see many women walking along the, the uh, pathway with a hoe in one hand, with a cell phone in the other hand, with a baby on their back, and their husband is following along carrying his shirt. And... Uh, <laughs> And you know, it's, it's easy, frankly, to look at other countries, and, and that is very true um, in, in a lot of developing economies. But w when we look at, especially like in the, in the breakdown of labor today here in the United States, the amount of labor that women shoulder, even women that are in homes with two working parents, the reality is the majority of childcare, the majority, the, we call it the mental load of running the family, thinking about where the kids need to be, when the doctor's schedule, you know, appointments need to be scheduled with aging parents, women are um, taking the, are shouldering the bulk of that. And so even in families where on paper, both men and women are working the same amount of hours. It's very rarely actually a breakdown of the same amount of hours. Typically women are shouldering a lot more of the labor and like in most places that labor is unpaid. Right. So women are working more hours, but they're not actually being compensated for that. And there's nothing to show for it in the marketplace. And so that actually does um, contribute to a huge, uh, a huge delta in inequality. And we can see it really obviously in places like Uganda, but we can actually also see it right here at home. And so I really believe that the conversation about gender equality um, actually needs to start with us. It needs mm -hmm. to start with how we are modeling this in our home. And I have two young sons. And I think the most revolutionary thing that I'm doing in my life and my career and my vocation is that I am married to a man that is consistently cooking and doing the dishes. And he's doing that in front of our sons who are seeing like, oh, wait, in order to make this household run, both my mom and my dad play equal parts in that. And, and my belief is that that's a powerful thing that they will go on that, that, that their expectation, if they you know, choose to get married, will be entering into marriages where the assumption is that they're going to shoulder an equal amount of, of the home life load. Um, and that's really exciting to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good, good view on that. Uh, well, besides your next vacation, uh, which might be the answer, but that's not the answer I'm looking for. What are you, th what are you thinking about? What are you reading? What's on your mind these days that's bugging you or you're excited about? Oh, well, definitely my, my vacation is the, um, <laughs> is, is the most top of mind thing that's coming up. Um, I think I would probably go back to, I'm incredibly interested and intrigued by how we more effectively engage men in the conversation about gender inequality. I think it has been relegated. It, we, we see gender inequality as a women's issue. And the reality is it's a human issue. And I believe deeply um, that the more equality we have, it's not zero sum, right? There's, there's this narrative that as women are grabbing more power, men are going to lose out. And I think that men are missing out um, immensely on what 
life could look like if we were a part of a system that respected and that created opportunity um, more equally. I think friendships and vulnerability and um, there's a there's a lot of really cool things that men would start to have access to. And thinking about how we lead that conversation, thinking about how we move away from the narrative of us versus them and kind of this power grab situation and more about how do we together as brothers and sisters in Christ think about how we each become more fully who we are created to be um, is really exciting to me. It's mm. something I think about, I read about a lot. I like to talk about when you ask me an open-ended question, I most likely go there, et cetera, et cetera. That's good. Uh, so you're one of the top 20 speakers, quote unquote, that you shouldn't miss the opportunity to see, according to Forbes magazine, if I got that right. But uh, yes, you did. We're excited you're coming to a thing we're doing called Leadership Collab in San Diego, five, six, seven hundred Christian leaders and their spouses who own and run businesses. How about a sneak peek at what you might be wanting to talk about there that people could uh-huh. say, oh, I think I want to come and hear more. Okay, well, well, a sneak peek might be, um, I think that there is some incredibly toxic narratives that are flying around out there about passion about building a life, of, about, about finding your passion, about following your dreams. And over the last 10 years, I have taken copious amounts of notes and have absorbed kind of the, the common knowledge of the day. And then I've gone back to my life of actually trying to build a life that's full of passion and purpose and impact. And I think we have a lot of things wrong. Um, and I am super excited to kind of unpack some of those things, some mindsets, some mentalities, some kind of common wisdom that I think is leading us down the wrong path, all for the purpose of helping to inspire and equip people to not find their passion, but to go out and to build lives that matter, vocation, um, relationships, community. And uh, I wrote a book about it. It's called Beginner's Pluck. It's going to come out in October, but the lovely folks at FCCI are going to get their hands on it early. And um, it's a lot of what I'm going to be talking about is some of those stories and concepts in the book. And so I'm super excited to be with everybody. Sweet. So uh, you probably will see on the screen the URL, but it's leadershipcollab.com, September 29th, October 2nd. That's September 29th, October 2nd at the Hotel Del Coronado, which is gorgeous in San Diego, California. So log on there, read more about Liz's bio and another sneak peek that we don't, uh, uh, haven't really advertised on the website is that you and Blythe Hill and Lorna Duick are going to have a conversation that I think will just rock the house about these things that we've just been talking about. So I'm very excited. So excited to be with those women. Yeah. No men on that panel. The heck with us. As long as you, here's here's my thing. I'm going to say, if you ask any of us about work-life balance, I just need your absolute commitment and promise that you will ask every man on stage the same question. Yes. And none of them are allowed to not do the dishes anymore. That's what I say. Do Do you know that the number one indicator of a girl's sense of esteem in what she's going to be able to accomplish in her life around middle school. It has nothing to do with where she went to school. It has nothing to do with the amount of books that she's read. It has nothing to do with socioeconomic status. The most powerful indicator is how involved her father was in housework. You want to start a revolution? 
do the freaking dishes. Do the dishes. Clear the cobwebs. Wax the floor. Come on. Come on. It's been a joy to be with you. I feel better about my 20 years in a cleaning company called Service Master now. <laughs> yeah, You're doing all... your part. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to seeing you in beautiful San Diego at the Hotel Del Coronado. We're even going to pay for your room. Oh, my God. Wow. There we go. I'm not living in my car anymore, no folks. More, no more. No, no more. more. Thanks Great. for coming on with us. Thank you, Greg. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.